Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. This edition of the PK Podcast was supported by Gemline. Gemline keeps you on trend, on time, and on budget with four product launches a year and inspiring seasonal trends. They offer a broad selection of products to fit any budget. Their brand partnerships with Isaac Mizrahi, Bobble, Brookstone, Igloo, Moleskin, Lamy, and Zebra provide more exciting branding solutions than ever before. Please be sure to visit their website at gemline.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you are a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, CEO of Common Skew, and I'm joined by my good friend and fellow chef, Roger Burnett, co-founder and president of Order Commander. We have a very special episode planned for today as we dive headfirst into the ever-changing world of social media, the new rules of marketing, and how to leverage one's influence to generate significant sales. Let me take a moment to introduce our esteemed guest, Mark W. Schaefer. Mark Schaefer is a globally recognized blogger, speaker, educator, business consultant, and author who blogs at businessgrow.com, one of the top marketing blogs in the world. He teaches graduate marketing classes at Rutgers University and has written four best-selling books, including The Tower of Twitter, Return on Influence, which was named one of the top business titles of the year by the American Library Association. His latest book is called Social Media Explained, Untangling the World's Most Misunderstood Business Trend. And without further ado, let us welcome Mark Schaefer. Mark, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, and thanks for the very nice introduction. That's kind. Well, and I reflect when I was reading the intro, I think I might have called it the Tower of Twitter, and in fact, it was the Tau of Twitter, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. I'll I'll blame the Canadian accent. (laughs) Okay. So, so Mark, uh, first of all, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us here today. We are deeply honored, and I thought I'd start off with one question, an easy one here for you. I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to be familiar with your book, Return on Influence, but for those people that are not familiar with it, do you mind taking a moment defining the thesis of the book and also trying to relate how it may apply to a small business B2B marketer? Sure. The idea behind the book is that we're in such an exciting era where everyone has access to high-speed internet, or most people, and we also have access to these free, easy-to-use publishing tools like Twitter and Facebook and blogging. And so this gives everybody the power to publish, the power to share your voice in a way. It's something we almost pay for granted today, Mm. but I mean, if you just think about uh, 10 years ago, to actually publish something that could be read by people of the world. I mean, it was an elite activity. You had to have a a contract. You had to have a a publisher or you had to work for a newspaper. And so with this new technology, influence has been democratized. And there are people out there who are blogging and tweeting and posting about products and services, and they could create an enormous amount of influence. And there are ways to actually measure that, to actually measure 
who can do the best job creating and sharing content about a certain subject. The book also looks at, okay, now what do we do with that? If we can identify people who really love what we do or could love what we do, how do we tap into that? Yeah. How can we tap into this new source of influence for our, our businesses? So it's a new idea, but it's a very relevant and powerful idea in an era where traditional advertising is slipping away. Yeah. And we need to look for new channels to connect to our customers. Mark, it's interesting when you, you talk about this in terms of these new tools that we've now got at our disposal. Is there a risk that we have now in this day and age of social media where it's so easy to publish content and given how easy it is to publish content, is there not a concern that quality is something that's really starting to take a hit? And how do we navigate this world, this brave new world where you mentioned that we've got traditional advertising isn't working, presumably because people are tuning it out. But do we not run into the same possible problem with social media where there's so much information in social media and so very few signals amongst the noise? Uh, are we at risk of possibly, or when I say at risk, are we at risk as marketers from possibly running into the same problem that traditional marketers before us ran into? Well, that's an excellent question, and it's a very timely question because I do think that there is a risk, and I think that there's a shift going on right now. A few months ago, I published a blog post called Content Shock, which really kind of set off the alarms for a lot of people in the industry, and in many ways, I think it perhaps has defined the marketing conversation this year, and it kind of builds on some of these ideas that you're suggesting that the, the, the information density in our world yeah. is, is exploding. It's literally exploding. I read that by 2020 to six years from now, the amount of information on the Internet is supposed to increase by 600%. Hmm. If you can wrap your mind around what six Internets are going to look like compared <laughs> to what we have now. And so it is a challenge for, for marketers and especially small businesses to just to step out and be the signal and not be part of the noise. I think quality is, is one part of the answer. I don't think it's the whole answer. I think there's a bit of mythology persisting on the web today that, that great content will always stand out. Mm. Now, I'll give you an example. I have a, a young woman who works for me. She lives out in L.A., she wrote a post for her blog on a very good subject. She did a great job with the post, and it didn't really go anywhere. She took the exact same post and put it on a big website as a guest blogger for mm. TechCrunch. Right. And the thing went, it thing went viral. Yeah. It was tweeted you know, over a thousand times. So what's the difference? The, her content was the same. It was great content. So obviously, what are the lessons here? Great content is not enough. You also need, A, an audience. Yep. And this is something that a lot of businesses miss. They figure, oh, well, we're on Facebook or we have a blog, build it, and they will come. That's a great line to a movie, but it's not a very good marketing strategy. And today, businesses have to actively and even aggressively Build that audience in a proactive way. And there's lots of ways to do that. There's lots of tools to do that. 
I think another aspect of this is consistency. If you create content consistently, Google views that as an advantage, and you get higher ratings for you as an author and your site as a source of information. And I also think there's an element of promotion. You know, how does this content ignite? How does it spread through a network? Yeah. The content doesn't do you any good if it just sits there. What's so interesting about what you just said there is that here your colleague had written this great post on her blog, which presumably is, is not as well trafficked as TechCrunch. Here she writes this great post. She doesn't really get a lot of comments or traction, yet she puts it on kind of the New York Times of tech blogs and, yeah. and all of a sudden gets this huge amount of traction. But what's interesting about that is to some extent that's really no different than the model 20 years ago where the only way that you could get publication is if you had that agent or if you had that media channel or if you were a writer for the New York Times or if you were a talk show host on CBS or something. And I think that's maybe just an observation that I wonder whether things have started to shift or I'd love to your opinion on this. I'm just making this question up here because it came to me. The social media world of 2006, 2007, the one that I remember when I first got onto it, when yeah. Facebook was just starting to become relevant to people outside of college. That seemed to me to be the golden age of social where like the tools were democratized and Mark Graham from Toronto, who's nobody, could go and build this great audience. Whereas I wonder whether things have started to change in 2013, 2014, where there may be less opportunity for Joe Average to build that audience unless they've got the star power of Mark Schaefer or the star power of TechCrunch behind them. Is, is there truth to that? Or is it just as well, easy I, to, to break through the noise? Well, I think that this is a natural evolution. I call this the, the third digital age that we're in right now. And the first digital age was based on exposure and presence. It was enabled by the World Wide Web. We needed to have a website. Now, then as now, if you were an early adopter, if you had one of the first websites in your industry, you're going to be in good shape. Yep. But as more and more people pile on, it gets difficult. The second digital age was based on search and SEO. If you were the first one to figure out SEO, you're going to be great. But then it gets harder as other people figure it out. And we're in that same era. As you mentioned, 2006, 2007 was the beginning of kind of the social mobile age. And if you were an early adopter, you were going to have success. But that gets harder to defend as big companies get in as competitors get in. But I still think there's a great opportunity, especially if you have an unsaturated niche. And there are lots of those. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, you don't have to necessarily look at, oh my gosh, how do I compete with Mark Schaefer or PR News or HubSpot or TechCrunch? You know, search today and content today is very locally oriented. And so even if you've got a competitor across the country or across the world, that doesn't mean that you can't still make an impact in your sales territory, in your region, by creating helpful, targeted, relevant, interesting, entertaining content that will help your customers. I, I do think there's still a world of opportunity out there, but it's certainly a little more difficult than it was in 2006, 2007. Right. Yeah, totally. So, Mark, 
You've advocated a term, and, and it's not new to you or to other members of the community, but I'll talk a little bit about brand journalism and how mm -hmm. that's important and what's going on today. And before I, I let you jump into that, journalism will imply to many of our listeners writing, and one of the common complaints or obstacles I think that people create for themselves in content creation is this notion of, I'm not a good writer. So in the broader context of brand journalism and why it's important as a discipline and why a small business person would want to embrace that concept, can you talk about that? And then also what that might mean for someone who doesn't feel comfortable writing. Okay. Well, that's a big question and a very important one. So. Let me start at a very high level and say that the word brand journalist is a hot button for a lot of people, and maybe even a confusing term, because it does imply, oh my gosh, not only do I have to be a writer, I've got to be a journalist. But let's start at a, at a higher level and talk about what really makes the social web go, and that is content. But not all content is created equal. So let me just give you a quick example. I'd say close to four years ago, I wrote a blog post about a company that was new then called Clout, K-L-U-T. This was a company that said, we're going to use big data to try to figure out how influential you are on the web. Well, the article did really well. It didn't just sit there. It moved. It was tweeted a thousand times. And so this journalist from the New York Times was doing an article about influence marketing, Googled the term and found me. Mm. And I ended up being quoted in the New York Times. And then it got syndicated, and my voice, my ideas, went in newspapers all over the world. Now, the question I have is, if I had only put my ideas on Twitter or Facebook, would I have ever been called by the New York Times? Now, those are forms of content, but the answer, obviously, is no. I needed something bigger. I needed something richer. So. For, for each of your listeners and the businesses that they represent, you need to think about what is our source of rich content, all right? How do we establish a voice of authority so that people will know us and trust us and seek us out? And we talked about writing, obviously, blogging as a legitimate source of rich content, but there are other sources, podcasts, like we're doing right now. This is a wonderful source of content. It's a red-hot area of content being driven by the fact that you can multitask while you listen to a podcast, and people are listening in more because with smartphones, basically we're carrying around a radio station in our pockets all the time. Another source would be video, a series of videos, especially if you're in a business that has lots of how-tos, how to you know, create a video, how to do something, how to help someone very, very popular way of creating content. And I think there's this kind of new movement toward visual content like Pinterest and Instagram. If you're a highly visual type of business that can benefit from a lot of interesting types of photography and image images, those are an, that's another important source of content. So okay, so there we are talking about the importance of content, the importance of rich content. It doesn't necessarily have to be writing. And now that kind of leads into this idea of brand journalism, where businesses are getting more serious about this now and saying, look, to cut through this density, to become the signal instead of the noise, we've got to put some resources into this. And so that has kind of spurred this new 
career option, really, where we're having professional content creators working for businesses and brands. So it's kind of interesting. You know, I think it's a good trend. It's certainly providing employment for a lot of good writers and content creators out there. It's creating better content for customers. It is blurring the lines a little bit between legitimate journalism and writing that's happening for companies. So there's a little controversy around that. But I think it's a healthy development. It's interesting, Mark. Roger and I were having this discussion a little bit before you joined the call that we were talking about this idea of a decline in authenticity or a possible decline in authenticity. And I'll tell you what the root of the subject was. So that now that we live in an age where clout is extremely important, whether you like it or you don't, if you're someone who is trying to be influential in the online world, having a strong clout score is important. And I think that a lot of the larger companies out there have tapped into professional writers or to agencies or PR firms that are now, quote unquote, establishing themselves as the voice of Dell or the, I shouldn't use Dell because I don't know how they do it, but bigger companies. So I think the question is, or maybe the observation I'd love for you to comment on is, have we seen a possible decline in authenticity in social media over the last several years that now that companies are clamoring to have great content and clamoring to have that post on TechCrunch and clamoring to have the landing page that gets converted on HubSpot? Whereas back in the early days, the ones that I mentioned, 2006, 2007, where the agencies didn't really know what they were doing. So brands that were on social media, it was literally the CEO. It was Michael Dell that was tweeting yeah. himself and people loved it. And yeah. Michael Dell would get yeah. up and he'd be a rock star. And, and, and I think Michael Dell probably still tweets himself, but does that happen as much? And can consumers start to see through what may come across as corporate BS? I have a theory about that. And it ties into some of our earlier discussion around how do we cut through this density. Yeah. And I think one of the ways to do that is through honesty, radical honesty, and being real. People hunger for that. And if you think about our society and how we, we for hundreds of years, for a thousand years, we would buy from people that we know and that we trust, yeah. our neighbors, the people in the corner market. And all that started to change about 100 years ago with mass advertising and broadcasting. And all of a sudden, that was gone. People didn't change. Customers didn't change. We still want to buy from people that we know and we trust, but companies just lost sight of that because it was so useful and elegant to give money to an advertising agency and yeah. wait for something to happen. Yeah. So my theory is that the companies that are the most human and the most real are going to win. And I think this is backed up by research that shows that the millennials are the least trusting generation. So I think there's an opportunity there if we recognize this and we also recognize their keen sense of finding a fake even if it's at 140 characters, yeah. then I think that I think the companies that remain true and real and human are going to cut through the clutter and they're going to be the signal against the noise. You know, I know that we 
as an industry or you think uh, an industry made up of a lot of small businesses and we're probably not dissimilar to a lot of other industries where small business comprises the majority of the makeup that I've always believed from a social perspective that we actually have a competitive advantage as small business owners despite how mm-hmm. busy we are and despite how many hats we wear and despite the fact that we're a salesperson a marketer an HR person an accountant all at the same time I still feel that if we can carve out that time for social and carve out that time to be authentic, then we actually stand a chance of building a brand that is a lot more authentic than, you know, some slick Fortune 100 campaign that's been built by a slick PR company. And I have to be careful in not painting them all with a broad general brush. But I think that since a lot of people in small business can't afford that PR agency or can't afford that consultant, it really falls back on them to go and just write it as it as it comes out of their mouth. And oftentimes that can generate great results. The one example that, Mark, you may not know of, but certainly a lot of listeners in our podcast will know of is that we've got one marketing director in our industry who is a supplier, goes and every time he visits a new city, he takes a photo of his hotel room view. Some people love it, some people hate it, and but the but more people love it than hate it. And this particular person, Dana Zezzo, for those people that are listening to the podcast, will certainly know that there is no more down to earth and no more more unfiltered than this particular mm-hmm. person, and he's he's mm-hmm. killing it. Uh, but I don't think well, that he would ever give that to a PR agency. <laughs> well, there's a lot of really interesting insights and, and wisdom and truth in your little anecdote there, and I do agree with you that small businesses do have an advantage in this space. And even in this example, I just think this is a lovely story that, you know, this guy is just being real and he's saying, this is where I am. And he's not trying to sell you anything. He's just saying, you know, look, I want to share my world with you today because, you know, I'm interested in you and I care about you and this is where I am and I think that's cool. And what I'm seeing in a lot of big companies, there's this weird dynamic going on where advertising agencies for decades have been built on the campaign. So you get money approved and you do the creative, you do the pitch, you do the creative, you execute, the money goes away and you start all over, okay? And this is the way advertising agencies are organized and financed. And to some extent, this is the way marketing departments have been kind of conditioned to operate over the last, you know, 50 years too. Now, here's the thing. Social media is not a campaign. If you're out there building relationships, you can't go up and down. You can't keep switching account managers around. It's got to be continuous. It's like your fella taking pictures out, out of the hotel room. That's not a campaign. He's building connections. He's building relationships. So I do believe there's an advantage to small businesses here. They're the ones in the trenches really doing this stuff. And what I'm finding is that I'll, I'll go in and work with big companies and they'll understand it intellectually, but then they'll say, okay, we have to get our advertising agency involved. Yeah. And when that happens, it turns into advertising again. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they know. And, and even no matter how much they, they think about, we need to create relationships, we need to be social, we need to be human and authentic, it goes right back in the advertising agency, it turns into another ad campaign. Yeah. So, Mark, I'm guessing you've seen in the recent weeks, and we've 
we've done a good job of catching on to it ourselves in our community. Some of the things that have been going on, like where Cadbury placed that vending machine for chocolate right in the middle of, of London, and based on some interaction that you did with the device, it would tell you which of the flavors of chocolate it believed you to like the best and would give you a free bar. And then mm -hmm. I think last week, Nike had a vending machine somewhere in New York City that was giving away free products as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. moments like that where the brand is sort of bridging the gap between the campaign and the relationship where you're seeing the most buzz be generated. The thing that's interesting to me, though, is because the platforms themselves on which all of us as marketeers are trying to advance our message also are continuing to shift when you look at the way that Google measures and, and provides analytics and even Facebook in its IPO, you know, it clearly has undergone a dramatic transformation in the way that it wants you as a marketeer to use its platform. I'm wondering from your perspective, do you see some homogeneity in those platforms now? Are you seeing them sort of come more closely to something that really isn't differentiated? Oh, that's a really interesting question. No one's ever asked me that before. Boy, boy, what a can of worms. <laughs> well, oh boy, I don't know if it's sameness. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm worried about that's, that's driving these platforms that may be their undoing ultimately mm -hmm. is that every single platform depends on, has a simple monetization strategy basically. They need to collect more personal information about you, turn it into ads, and then find ways for you to spend more time on their platforms so you see more ads. That's it. I mean, that's the driver. Now, the thing that I'm concerned about is now, you know, Facebook is a public company and Twitter is a public company and Google is a public company. Well, the only way they can increase their profits every quarter without exception, without end, is to collect more personal information about us and display it and use it in bolder and bolder ways. Yep. Right. We've seen that blow up on Facebook in the last couple of weeks and it's going to continue to be an issue, I think. So that's the biggest trend I see and maybe in a way it's homogenizing the platforms too because they're all kind of trying to drive at the same goal. But it's like, where does it end? I mean, at what point? Do people start to say, no, you really have enough personal information about me? No, I'm really uncomfortable with the way you're sharing this with advertisers. You know, is there going to be a tipping point? You know, another thing, I, I, get, I get questions in my classes all the time, when is there going to be a backlash on the whole privacy issue? And my question is, why hasn't there been a backlash already? Mm. Yeah. There, there's yeah. been so many breaches and problems. I mean, they, they've been they've been having protests and lawsuits in Europe. They've passed regulations in Europe and in Korea, South Korea. Nothing's happened in America. Mm. We just we just love our we just love Farmville too much. <laughs> we just love those pictures of cats to push back. I think. I have the good fortune of having three boys from 17 to 23, so they're right mm -hmm. smack dab digital native environment and you know when when the conversation turns away from their snapchatting and I can get them to have a conversation with me about something like this often when we ask them about privacy their message back is but they use that to make the experience better for me so why would I care which yeah. is really really different than the perspective I think that those of us who didn't grow up in this environment 
you know, as we watch sort of the way print advertising becomes more tailored to my shopping habits online and, you know, things that are just very obvious, the correlation between what I'm doing online and how the world is reacting with me, that it, it makes us more uncomfortable, I think, um, than maybe it does for my kids. I mean, there's a difference between personalization and privacy. I mean, personalization is, is good and useful, and we love to see that at Amazon or Pandora or Facebook. But when you don't have the choice to be private when you want it to be private, and there are lots of examples of that out there, that's a bigger issue that I wouldn't expect teenagers to really understand that. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know if it'll become an issue or not. As a side note, there's uh, s- someone that's part of the Promo Kitchen community, Mark, that wrote an article about a niche social network called Scruples, uh, S-Gruples. I-, I might be getting the, na- uh, the pronunciation of it wrong. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but, you know, they would be similar to like a path or like one of these uh-huh. more intimate social platforms that allow you to keep a much more curated, maybe more private experience. And the person who was writing the article was was talking about how there's a rise of a platform like this and about how people may one day just stand up against Twitter and Facebook and say, you know, to heck with you. I'm not going to post my pictures on here anymore because I'm concerned about privacy. And, and my response to her was that I believe in North America that Facebook is kind of like coffee and caffeinated coffee, I should say, and path and scruples, if I'm getting the name right, is like decaf. And, you know, one is a little bit better for you, but not nearly as exciting. And and I posed the question, I said, well, if you're, yeah. if you're posting something on Facebook, whether it's, you know, mark your blog post or like Roger, a picture of one of your kids going off to college or like me, a picture of my funny dog, that I'm probably going to get a heck of a lot more engagement on Facebook, even though I might be kind of selling my soul to the devil. But I still want that engagement, whereas if I post it on Google+, or even worse, you know, scruples, then I may get half a like, and it might be from my great aunt. So, <laughs> so, so I think that this is maybe more of a comment that I think that we're still prepared to you know, indulge in something that I think we know is bad for us because it still feels so good. Well, I think there's a psychology at work here that, you know, because I've been thinking about this myself, I mean, so many people are angry with Facebook or fed up with Facebook, but they don't leave. Yeah. And I think part of it is there's a real psychological issue around FOMO, fear mm. of missing, missing out. out. Yeah. And some people are absolutely obsessed with this, that they check their social platforms you know, constantly because they don't want to miss anything. And so the problem becomes that somehow you need to create a competitive social network, a competitive world, where not only it's so compelling that you go, but you've got to bring all your family and friends with you, because if you don't, you're going to have FOMO. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that kind of explains, so you might have this little niche market about, you know, scruples, the one I heard, I think it's called secret, okay. where, you know, it's, 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 you know, people that are more anonymous and, but until you move everybody, you're still going to go back to Facebook because you just can't stand it. Yep. 
Yeah, it's a challenge. Um, I uh, just taking a look here at the time. Uh, we've we've probably got uh, I would say anywhere between five and ten minutes in order to respect your time here, Mark. I know that I've got well, I've got many more questions, but I I is <laughs> limited to one. And and Roger, if you, if you want to crank out another one as well, and then we always like to leave a little bit of time at the end, Mark, for you to have the last word, of course. Why don't I get my last question in, and then because the tip of my tongue, and then Roger, you go, and then and then we'll give you the last word, Mark. So the promotional products industry is majority. I would define it as an industry that is slowly moving into the 21st century. There's a lot of really interesting people that are doing really interesting things in this industry, and it's very vibrant. But I think that a lot of people in this industry would also agree that it is a primarily relationship-driven business. And when I say relationship-driven business, I mean an in-person relationship business. So mm-hmm. golf course, lunch, coffee, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. How does someone that has been operating their business for, let's say, 25 years, they've been making good money, and they're now thrust into the 21st century, they've got a nice book of business, and they're being told or being forced into the world of social media, how do they transition an offline relationship-based business into an online relationship-based business in a smooth way that doesn't... Yeah cause them problems? I think the biggest thing is to be aware that it's still a relationship business. And this is a key idea. It may sound subtle, but it's a key idea. Because what happens is that you know people love seeing people, going out to lunch with them, meeting them, but then they get into the digital world yep. and they say, look at this new product, look at this new product, look at this link. That's not how we treat people in the real world. So why are you being different in the online world? Yeah, That is a big hurdle. For somehow, all of a sudden, when instead of talking to a person, we see a little picture of a person, it creates this digital divide, and we treat them differently. But we shouldn't. The online world can simply be an extension of the strengths that we already have creating relationships. We need to think about that, that this is just an extension of our strengths. It doesn't have to be intimidating. It doesn't have to be scary. It's just another way to connect these people. And oh, by the way, in the online world, this is a way we can do a little wave, do a little handshake online every single day. Even if we can't see those people every day, we can give them some reason, some little piece of content to say, we care about you. We're thinking about you. Here's something cool. This made me think about you. I'm here to solve your problem. Yep. Somewhere Dana says I was smiling, huh, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And snapping right. a photo of uh, some uh, parking lot in yeah. you know, Dallas. Provo. Provo, <laughs> wherever. So, Mark, you will be amused to know that it was just this year that a member of our industry made an attempt to compile a ranking of our industry practitioners with a broad reach by using their club score as a key metric in determining where those people ranked on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's been a couple of years since you originally wrote the book that included a pretty significant discussion and a review of clout. How's your opinion changed of that over the years? What we need to look at what clout really does, and it's misunderstood by people. They get hung up in this emotion of, uh, oh, they can't tell you how influential I am. And what clout really does is they give you a relative score of how well people can create content that moves. As we've already discussed, 
That's really important today. Hmm. It may not tell you how influential you are at work or with your family or you know in your church or whatever, but the ability to move content on the web certainly is an advantage. And so my view of that really hasn't changed. I think there are new platforms out there that are now rivaling clout, or they may be better than clout in some way. But I mean, as far as a blunt instrument, as a free blunt instrument just to give you a relative score about how you're doing, I think it's still, it means something. Mm-hmm. And- Correct me if I'm wrong, I swear I read a blog post from you not too long ago that you were working with an organization who was looking for a simple means by which to measure whether or not their efforts were working, mm-hmm. and that you had mentioned that in the absence of any other tool at this point, you still think that clout would be a reasonable way for an organization to do that. Is that was that accurate? Yeah, that, that, that's right, because what I was trying to do was this was a, an organization that was very heavily oriented toward print and television advertising. And I was trying to build a culture in that company. I was their consultant. I was trying to build a culture in this company of content creation. So to get a high cloud score, you've got to create quality content on a consistent basis and engage with a relevant audience that will share your content. Well, look, that's exactly what this company needed to do. They needed to create great content, do it consistently, build an audience. And so the clout score, I think, in that case, is a good measure to reflect the kind of culture I was trying to achieve there. Is a perfect no. Does it show that they're moving in the right direction? Absolutely. Well, uh, Mark, as as we get into our final moments here, I just want to say a big thank you. And I think the one observation that that I have that I want to share with people that are listening to this this call is it's amazing to me, and you're an incredible example of it, Mark, as to how someone has come and been able to create a compelling online reputation and brand by blogging and sharing content and staying at it. And I think that for for people in the promo industry that are that are questioning, well, like why should I spend time on blogging, or why should I spend time on this Pinterest page, or why should I spend time on Facebook, and so on and so forth, you're a great example of how that can pay off quite handsomely. And a lot of people in the promo world are, I mean, they're not consultants in the way that you're a consultant, but there are people that are trying to build an audience and they're trying to establish a reputation for being a quality thought provoking marketer that can provide engaging promotional products to their clients. Right. And one of the best ways to do that is to create a brand reputation as being, being a leader. So for those people on this podcast that are thinking, ah, this is crazy. I'd encourage you to go take a look at Mark's blog and look at the brand that he has been able to create for himself and the kinds of people that he has now attracted his clients. So congratulations to you, Mark, for that. And, Thank you. Thank um, you. I did say you were going to have the last word. So anything that you want to share with us that we had forgotten to mention in this uh, podcast, Mark, that members of the $20 billion promotional products industry should know about? You know, and actually I, I have worked in your industry. I've had some clients in your industry, so I know it. And, and I love the fun of your industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a really cool place to be. So I would love to stay connected with anybody listening to the podcast. It's really easy to find me. I'm at www.businessesgrow.com, and there's lots of 
great stuff there, free stuff to uh, to help you. There's blog posts, podcasts, information about my books, and so forth. And I think my latest book, Social Media Explained, is a good primer for people who are still struggling to figure this out. So I would I would emphasize that that would that's a good place to start. You can get that book on Amazon, and it's dirt cheap. Fantastic, but worth every cent. So <laughs> it's dirt cheap, and you can read it in ninety minutes. So no excuses, no excuses, people out there. Well, <laughs> if, you're, if you're if you're confused, you know you can afford it, and you got that you you've got to have ninety minutes to read this book, and you can this will help you figure it out. Well, you know what we'll do, Mark. Uh, you know, it's so long as we haven't uh, deeply offended you on this podcast that maybe we can re- <laughs> we we can come back at you in maybe uh, six to twelve months once everyone in the industry has had a chance to read that book, and uh, we can certainly share uh, uh, some some of uh, the experiences that that we learn from it. So Let's thank you so that. much. And, 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 and you've done a great job with your questions today. You really got me thinking. You, a few of your questions are going to end up as blog posts. Uh-huh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. The good old can of worms comment, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's well, right. The, thank and, and again, on, on behalf of the entire Promo Kitchen community, we really appreciate your time, Mark. And uh, this will be up very soon, probably within about a week or so. And uh, really appreciate all your efforts. Awesome. Great job, guys. Thank you. Thank you.